President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Christopher Gennady, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. Uh, my co-hosts are Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note that Jeremy and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation of any trading strategy nor tied to an offer of sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. So, Getting right down to it, I mean, it's really been quite a week. Uh, Jeremy and I were speaking before the show. We were excited to hear what you, Professor Siegel, are thinking about and speaking about. I know you've been on the media this week. Uh, It's it's been unbelievable. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I got a call from CNBC, and I was on Wednesday, and I was pretty controversial. I I said if uh, Trump went on to the White House lawn tomorrow and said, well, I've decided I don't like this job, I'm resigning uh, the Dow Jones would go up a thousand points. Um, uh, that most people want would much be much more comfortable with the President Michael Pence than the President Donald Trump. Um, the important thing I think that people have to keep in mind is that the stock market rally since the election has been based on the Republican agenda, not the Trump agenda. Now there are intersections, but there's also key differences, as we know, on trade and currency and immigration. And um, uh, so anything that would strengthen the Republicans relative to the presidency is actually good for the markets. Now, uncertainty is always bad for the markets. So when things are uncertain, you're always going to get some reaction, obviously. Um, But longer term, I think the Republicans would be more united under if something happens, if they, you know, if they try impeachment, if we, you know, he steps down or whatever, under a President Michael Pence, Republicans would actually be more united and 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 uh, much more likely to pass their agenda. So I also think of even if Trump stays in, that he will pass basically the Republican agenda. Uh, on tax reform and regulatory reform. So uh, in either of those cases, uh, and we can see the bounce back of the market from that uh, Wednesday sell-off, I think reflects uh, those facts. Yeah, Professor, it's Jeremy. Um, You know, it's amazing how quickly the market's resilient in all these news. I mean, do you think it was that we had that, that special counsel appointed to investigate Trump right after that just brought risk right back, that they, maybe this is going to give him more of a challenge? Um, or do you just think that it would have bounced back either way, that, you know, it, that there's still this underlying support for that Republican agenda that people, that's what people are looking to? Yeah, and I think that's in the, in the front run, the uncertainty. The first thing that people thought of, oh, my God, this is going to delay tax reform. It's dead for 2017. And, that's, and that, I think, was an initial cause of the sell-off. Uh, I don't think it's dead. 
I don't think it's a, it's no slam dunk, but I don't think it's dead. Uh, and and then people turned around and said, hey, no, no matter what happens, you know, uh, you know, and, and you know, Paul Ryan got out there and said, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, it, it doesn't mean we we can't do these investigations and get a, a corporate tax bill formed. And uh, you know, as I said on the networks, I I I, I said, remember when uh, voters threw all the Demo- all the Republicans out after the financial crisis in the 2008 election. And so Obama had the House and the Senate in those two years, and that's the only time he had it. They passed Obamacare. They passed the Gram-Dodd. They passed, I mean, all the regulatory reforms. So don't think that, you know, people say, oh, is the, the voters are going to take the vengeance out on the Republicans. The chances that they'll keep the House uh, in 2018 are now uh, less, and I agree on that. Actually, I think they are less, but nonetheless, a lot can be done in two years. Yeah. I mean, the same week we had, we actually did have more uh, news on the political front outside the U.S. You had Brazil, uh, had their yeah. president involved yeah. in some scandals here. You saw huge, I mean, Brazil had been one of the best performing markets. I know. Um, it's bounced thing. back today, hasn't it? I haven't checked yes. it. I was down, yeah. what, 11 or 12 percent? And the currency um, was down five or six percent. So the the whole market, you know, in U.S. dollar terms, was down. Even yeah, more. yeah. Obviously, I mean, that's a definite political event. You finally think you've got corruption behind you, and Brazil is huge. Uh, you know, I hope that, you know, that they can find political stability there and and get the market back to to where it should be. Yeah, I mean, sure. that that was obviously a huge emerging market event. But when we take the big, the big picture is that both the emerging market and Europe are now moving up. Uh, and the U.S. is still growing. Uh, look at those jobless claims yes, uh, yesterday. Um, there's no sign yet of, of a slowdown. The Fed is going to hike in June. Uh, you know, the, the 10-year is still at a very uh, low rate. Um, uh, it's not that this expansion will last forever, but it, there, there's no real signs that the excesses that, her, you know, recession is on the horizon and the rest of the world is definitely coming out. And they're in the much earlier stages of an economic expansion. And as we pointed out so many times, you know, 40 to 45 percent of the profits of the S&P 500 come from abroad. Look what's happened to the dollar. The dollar has gone down. This is good for their dollar profits, for their foreign sales. So, and that's one reason I think that we see the big cap indices outperforming the Russell and several others is now, oh, wow, finally we've got the dollar working in our direction and the foreign economies working in our direction. And both those factors, I think, have really changed the psychology of, uh, of global investing, which, you know, to be frank, had been in the toilet for many years, as as they did so much worse than the, the U.S. alone. So, Professor, I, I just want to you know thank you for your comments. The last time I was here, it was actually President uh, Trump's inauguration day, uh, and I just think back. Uh, it it hasn't really been that long. It's only May nineteenth, but wow, yeah. so so much yeah. has happened. I mean, and I think you can expect more. 
Uh, <laughs> of course. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, whether it leads to final resignation or impeachment or whatever, um, uh, it is more likely that Trump will sign the Republican bills that will be presented to him. As his power and influence goes down, and there, and he's not ideologically opposed to the tax. Where there's some minor details, but you know the Republican tax and regulatory are pretty much on key. If the Republicans get it done in Congress, he'll sign it, whether he's under investigation or not, and it's law. Whether he's under investigation or impeachment or not, um, and the only way that it can be undone is if in coming years the Democrats take both the House and the Senate and the presidency. And that's the only way that, that it could be undone. So it you know, can, cannot even be undone two years from now. Four years from now, if things really go badly and we have a total switch, you know, then they can work on undoing those things if they want to. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it, when we take a look at the real politics of what can be done, um, it, it's still extremely favorable for the Republican agenda. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today and uh, helping us uh, to kick off the weekend with a lot to, a lot to think about. I, I'm, I'm happy to be with you. Thank you. Uh, talk to you next week. Absolutely. So today we have quite a show. Uh, two great guests. Uh, our first guest uh, today uh, joins us, uh, Chris Meyer, Managing Principal at TruePoint Institutional Advisors. Chris, thanks for being on the program. Oh, thank, for, thank you for having me, Jeremy. So, so Chris, I, I had an, an, it, something happened, and it really fits right into your wheelhouse, I think. I was at a conference in Pittsburgh this week. It was for small and medium-sized endowments and foundations, talking all about just different elements of asset allocation, investments, expectations. And I was sitting on my panel, and I am not kidding. The real question that came in was the return bogey is 8%. In today's market, how do we get there? And I, I, I thought you, you'd have a lot of uh, things to say about uh, about that question, uh, based on you know your experiences and uh, different things there. Well, first of all, I think an eight percent bogey is going to be difficult to achieve. Agreed. <laughs> if if you look at where bond yields are, two to three percent. Suppose you get three percent out of bonds, will be a little generous. And you have a 70, 30, 80, 20, you're going to need high single digit returns on the rest of your portfolio. And where stock valuations are, dividends, and uh, earnings growth, I think it's going to be awfully difficult to get there. Our asset allocation modeling will show yeah, it's probably a little under 50% probability over the next 10 years to hit that 8% bogey. So, what do you have to do? There are a few things you can do. You can increase the risk of the portfolio to try to do that. Go from a 70-30 to 80-20 or 90-10 stock bond ratio. You can cut your spending if you're an endowment or foundation. Well, that's not going to go over well with the president of the university or the executive director of the community foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, you can you know, lower your actual rate of return if you're a pension, which means you have to contribute more or cut benefits. So that's not going to go over well. Uh, there probably are some ways from an investment standpoint that you can increase the return without increasing the overall risk. Further diversification, uh, 
uh, lower fees, uh, don't make mistakes. You know, I think you look at a lot of the studies out there, and there's a lot of money lost to excessive fees and mistakes, slippage uh, in the portfolio. So if you can avoid some of that, uh, that would help. And then just structuring the portfolio better. Uh, tilt the portfolio to areas that historically, if you believe in the f- they will in the future, add incremental value. So more to value, maybe more to small cap, other factors, uh, momentum, quality, profitability. Tilt the portfolio to some of those types uh, of strategies to add incremental return uh, to give you a better probability of hitting that 8% bogey. Chris, let me uh, jump in here. This is Jeremy. My uh, colleague Chris is uh, subbing in for me in the in the driver's seat at, at Wharton today. I'm on, I'm on the road, but uh, awesome. thanks for joining us on the program. And Chris jumped in with a sort of starting question on sort of return expectations. Uh, maybe before we we continue on that path, maybe we could just introduce a little bit more of your background for our listeners. How you're approaching this? Um, you know, you, you know, you and I've been been talking to each other for a while. You've been you know previous client of ours um, and. You know, talk about sort of how you grew up in the industry, what your focus is on at TruePoint, and uh, you know how you, how you sort of look at the asset allocation questions that we're talking about here. Great. Well, just a background on me. I started my career out of college in the trust department uh, at Fifth Third Bank. Uh, was a math and econ major, so realized I didn't know anything about business. Went back, got an MBA, and right out of MBA school, started with Fund Evaluation Group, which is uh, an investment consulting firm, and played several different roles. Uh, started out doing performance measurement, uh, then also would do manager due diligence, then eventually oversaw the research department as a chief investment officer where I would oversee our research, uh, our publications, our asset allocation modeling, manager due diligence. Did that for about 22 years and then decided I, I wanted a change and uh, started True Point Institutional Advisors uh, two years ago had known the folks at TruePoint uh, for, for a long time, and our investment philosophy synced up, and I, uh, I liked their culture. And what I really wanted to do at TruePoint was work with an underserved market. So we're looking to work with the small and midsize clients. Uh, at Fund Evaluation Group, I worked with them, but I also worked with the billion-dollar-plus especially endowments foundations uh, and recognize the need that those five, ten, Thirty, forty, fifty million dollar institutional investors are often underserved. Uh, so, started the True Point Institutional Advisors, and um, just have enjoyed my time here and uh, doing a lot of the same things that I did previously, uh, but focused on a different marketplace, and also through what we call outsourced CIO or outsourced chief investment officer, uh, because from a governance structure, we think that is optimal. And so where do you think, you know, as you, as you think about the opportunities for you in the outsourced CIO model, I mean, where are you, are you thinking the, the biggest opportunities coming from? Is it from this application with tr- traditional consultants? Is it from people who just don't have the right plans in place? I mean, who's your real target market and, and clients that you're going after? Our target market would be those that uh, don't have a traditional consultant that's doing a good job for them. Uh, it could be they're using somebody that, doesn't understand the institutional marketplace, somebody that is charging high fees, uh, somebody that is with a large firm, but there's a lot of turnover, so they don't have somebody that truly understands the institutional marketplace 
and you know, in some we'll, we'll say that aren't necessarily putting the client's interests first. And that's one of the things at TruePoint that we, that we take pride in is that we're truly independent and we have an intellectually honest approach to investing. Yeah, I was reading your, your paper um, that you, you recently have been, been working on um, called Insignificant Consideration of Agency Costs. And, and one of the things you talk about, and this goes to really Chris's question to start, was you know, how are we going to get 8% returns? In some ways, people build portfolios. You talk about one of the issues you see across the, the board is, is a little bit over-diversification. I'm, I'm curious to drill into that. Um, we had Professor Siegel at the top of the show talking about opportunities in Europe, emerging markets. Um, there's you know, this question on diversification is, should you be U.S. biased? Should you be globally biased? Uh, but then you also talk about you know, how do you, you know, what's the, the minimum position you want to take in a position? I, maybe talk through where you think people get over-diversified and then how you look to build portfolios. Sure. So on the over-diversification was looking at a portfolio from another advisor. We were bidding on the this prospect, and notice they had seven or eight active large-cap mutual fund managers in the portfolio. You, you put all those together, and you basically have the index fund, but with active management fees. So that's yeah. over-diversification. So you may have 5% positions and eight managers for your 40% U.S. large-cap allocation. Now, part of the reason that I think advisors do that is they don't they don't want to put it in one or two managers because they're afraid that one or two of those managers have poor performance. The entire portfolio looks lousy and, and they get fired. Uh, so they're, they're looking at career risk, uh, but that doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily in the best interest of the client. So how we structure portfolios is, we, as I mentioned, we have an intellectually honest approach and it's all based uh, on evidence. We want we are not looking to hire skill what we would call skillful managers, traditional stock pickers. I did that for 20 some years and, and it's awfully hard to try to identify who those skillful managers are beforehand. I can do it afterwards. That's not that's not too hard. Uh, but trying to identify who they are beforehand is difficult. And if you look at the uh, SPIVA, the uh, S&P index versus active uh, Research that just came out, it's 90% over the last 15 years, 90% of active managers fail to beat the benchmarks. So you could ask, well, your job's that identify those 10%. And as I mentioned, I think it's awfully hard to identify who those 10% are beforehand. Uh, and there's been some studies, Fahm and French did some studies that said there, maybe there's 2 to 3% that are truly skillful you know, after, you, after you do all these uh, analysis on them. But even if we could find who those two to three percent are, most investors would not be patient enough to stick with those those active managers who over a twenty, thirty year period will outperform because they will have periods in time where they underperform. So rather than focus on skill based managers, whether that's picking stocks or bonds or tactically allocating portfolios, we want to use an evidence based investment approach. Uh, where you recognize market efficiencies, you recognize factors uh, that drive returns. So that could be value or momentum or fundamental indexing type approach. Uh, and focus on long-term. Don't let that short-term noise cloud your investment approach. Uh, recognize that market timing is difficult and take that 
long-term approach with a well-diversified portfolio using rules-based strategies, whether that be straight index funds or smart beta, whatever we want to call those rules-based strategies today, uh, and, and, and keep rebalance the portfolio uh, when it moves outside the bands and take that long-term approach, be patient, and I think those types of strategies and that type of approach will do better than most over the long term. Uh, and it also avoids a lot of the mistakes that we see individual investors and institutional investors make, such as chasing performance, uh, selling out at market bottoms, and things of that nature. So taking that approach should uh, generate superior returns over the long term. So let, let me just introduce our, uh, our guests here. Um, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Chris Gennady, and we're taking this half hour along with Jeremy Schwartz, my co-host, with Chris Meyer, Managing Principal at TruePoint Institutional Advisors, uh, definitely discussing uh, some of the finer points, manager selection, looking at different ways to build indices. And, and, and Chris, I'd love to get your take on something that we often get asked. I know Jeremy and I talk about it all the time. And the clients are, are sitting out there. They're seeing the massive flow from the traditional mutual fund-oriented approaches into the uh, lower-cost beta indexes as well as smart beta indexes. Uh, when all is said and done, maybe five, ten years in the future, how much do you think is going to move from active, which still has the lion's share of the assets today, over the passive side of the scale? Yeah, I, I think you'll continue to see the trend line going up. I don't think you're ever going to see 100% passive. Uh, there's always going to be people that want to try to seek outperformance. That's why Las Vegas is so successful, and uh, you have casinos all around the world. And I'm not trying to say that active management is, is gambling, but people want to try to outperform. But I think people have also recognized, and with that SPIVA report I mentioned just coming out, it's not 50 or 60% of active managers underperforming. It's 80 90%. Uh, so I think you'll continue to see a movement to those low-cost, either index funds or rules-based strategies, smart beta, whatever we want to call them, uh, because you can get the same type of returns as active managers give you, a uh, lot less costs and a lot less tracking error versus the benchmark, uh, which keeps those uh, advisors employed because they don't have to go defend underperforming managers. Chris, I mean, so it's an interesting point. Well, obviously, they're not going to be 100%, but do you think we could get an extreme? I mean, so if it's really true that 80 to 90% underperform, um, in reality, 80 to 90% shouldn't exist. So should we get up to that level? Well, I mean, we'll eventually create, you know, we get so many people passive that there's going to be opportunities for the active to outperform. And, and what prevents that from happening? I mean, do you think the consulting community, you could say in some ways your points on agency problems and the conflicts of interest, you know, they sort of in some ways stay in business by trying to make it complex and say, look, we're going to pick for you these best active managers. Will they ever just embrace passive? I mean, what, but I'm curious if you think what the highest number of percentage passive will get up to. Yeah, I don't know what the highest would be, but at some point, if, if more and more managers move, or more and more advisors and consultants move to passive, there'll be fewer and fewer active, and maybe, maybe you have the cream of the crop rise to the top, and, and, they, and those active managers can add some value. Where that is, is it 75%, 90%, 99%? I'm not sure. Very tough. 
As for your question of will consultants recommend more passive strategies, I think there are some. You know, I serve on the City of Cincinnati Retirement System, and our consultant has recommended passive on the U.S. side. Uh, fund evaluation group, when I was there, we recommended that. Um, not 100%. Uh, and you, you will have some consultants, I think, moving more in that direction, uh, especially the ones that recognize that they need to put their clients' interests first and not their business interests. And I think you sort of alluded to that, Jeremy, that there's that sense that we need to add some value to justify our fees. So we're going to pick these active managers. Rather than focusing on what's important for an institutional investor, which is what's the proper asset allocation, how much risk should we be taking, what's our risk capacity, what, what's our risk appetite, those type of questions, what should our spending policy be, our actual rate of return. You know, those big strategic questions are the important ones, and that's where consultants can add a lot more value than picking a small-cap growth manager versus a Russell 2000 growth index. So I, I think the consultants that recognize that will move more in that direction. Yeah. I don't know if, if when we talked about the over diversification, um, I mean, where would you? So I, I got your point that people fill in eight large cap managers instead of when they just buy the index. Um, how many, when you break out asset allocation, I mean, how do you think about building that global portfolio? I mean, how many sleeves do you think is appropriate? Um, and think about from, from that standpoint. Right. You, you probably don't need all nine Morningstar style boxes you know, large cap growth, large value core, mid and small. Um, but I, I think what you do need covered is large cap and small cap. Whether you have mid cap in there, uh, you, your small and large managers may cover that. Uh, international equity, uh, international small cap, emerging markets, if that's not part of the international equity, uh, fixed income, and then perhaps some real assets, you know, REITs or real estate. That covers, the, you know, I think, the vast majority of what you need in a portfolio. You know, there are others that will add further diversifying asset classes. But unless it's a meaningful position in the portfolio, it, it probably is not adding much value. Chris, I had something else that that was uh, – sorry, I, I um, jumped in there. I, I had something else come up uh, at the conference, and you, you were mentioning real assets and uh, things that many would consider in the alternatives bucket. And it was so interesting to hear um, – and I admit I'm, I'm not an alternatives expert, but at the conference it seemed like private equity, if you were large enough to gain access to it – was being viewed in a an extremely positive light in today's market, and maybe that's uh, consultant driven um, because a lot of these uh, endowments work through consultants. Mm -hmm. And then you would sit there, and you would you would just not even hear about say all other other alternative options like you know a managed futures approach. And I know trend following hasn't really uh, been all that great of a strategy for the for the past few years. But I'd I'd be curious to to hear your thoughts on kind of how to think because obviously all these alternative assets are just so different. They do such different things. How should some uh, type of institution go about sort of thinking between the different buckets there? Right. So with private equity, if you know, there's been studies that have shown if you, if you have an average private equity manager, there's basic, you're basically getting the public market equivalent. So if, if you're just going to get an average manager, 
you're sacrificing liquidity and not gaining anything. Now, if you can access the top half, top quartile type managers, uh, then there, there appears to be some type of premium there. So the question is, can you access those managers or not? Uh, some of the Ivy League schools appear to have been able to do a good job with that. And if you look at the Nakubo or, uh, study, they've, they've done research, and it, it shows it's kind of interesting. The bigger schools tend to have better performance in the private equity versus the smaller schools, whereas on the public equity, there's really no difference between the manager selection between the big schools and the small schools. So some of the big schools appear to be gaining access there. Now, what some of the smaller and mid-sized schools or endowments and foundations will do is use a fund-to-fund manager. But if that fund-to-fund manager is over-diversifying the portfolio by putting 20 or 30 private equity funds in there and then charging fees, 1%, maybe 1.5% fees, you're losing some of the benefit there. So I think you really need to try to ask the question, do we have access to the top half, top quartile managers? Uh, And take a good look at yourself and say, not everybody can be top half. Half the people have to be bottom half. And where where are we in that uh, before deciding to venture into the private equity realm? So, so Chris, uh, it, it's been such a great discussion, and I have to apologize because there's just never enough time. Uh, but Jeremy and I wanted to to just give you the opportunity for any any sort of closing thought that you had, and and anything that we may not have covered that people should be looking to you uh, for at uh, True Point in your in your role. I would just say that, and and Jeremy uh, referenced it, uh, a paper that. I have been writing, and uh, I've written two, and he he saw the draft of the third in the series. But just try to understand why do investors fail to meet their state of benchmark returns. And there's five reasons I outline, and these are each of the in the five series. Uh, The first is an absence of effective board and committee processes. So make sure you get the process and the governance right. Uh, Inadequate investment committee governance trying to understand what role the investment committee should take versus the advisor. And we lean towards giving discretion either to a CIO, if you're a large enough institution, or an outsourced CIO, rather than have the volunteer investment committee make those decisions. Uh, We touched on uh, conflicts of interest and insignificant consideration of agency costs. Uh, The biggest reason from an investment standpoint that I think why investors fail to perform well is a lack of patience and discipline. Uh, Their behaviors... Our human behavior tends to chase returns, uh, terminate managers at the wrong time. And then finally, uh, misguided investment focus, Fo- not focusing on the right things, but focusing on the minutia. And I think if you take a step back and look at that and ask the questions, how are we structured and what are we doing, and understand market history and understand behaviors, you're in a much better position uh, to perform well uh, for your institution. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, Stay tuned, everyone. After the break, uh, Jeremy and I will come back uh, with a former guest from this program, Raul Paul. I'm Chris Gennady, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host today, Chris Gennady, joined by my co-host, Jeremy Schwartz. And Jeremy and I would like to welcome Raul Powell 
back to the program. He's a repeat guest. Uh, he writes for the Global Macro Investor, um, and he was also the co-founder of Real Vision Television. Raul, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks very much. And, and Raul, maybe just for some of the listeners who didn't catch uh, the first time around, if you, if you could briefly share a bit on, on your background, your interests, your passion within the industry, uh, I, know, I know I would love to hear it personally. Yeah, sure. My background was, you know, I've been in finance for 27 years. So I was at Goldman Sachs where I ran the hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives. Um, I then moved over to the dark side and started and managed a a large global macro fund for um, a hedge fund firm called GLG Partners. At the time, it was one of the largest hedge fund firms in the world. Um, And then eventually opted out of the rat race and moved to Spain, where I started writing macroeconomic research for the world's largest hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and that's called the Global Macro Investor. And I spent 10 years in Spain writing that and then crazily came up with an idea one day that thinking about how financial media had let people down back in 2008, 2009, and how they hadn't really warned people the severity of what was coming and had dealt with it, you know, finance as entertainment, essentially, which it wasn't. It's people's life savings. And the idea that, that I came up with was to start Real Vision Television, which is essentially a new video-on-demand television channel for finance, which is subscription-based. But basically, we bring the world's most famous investors, best analysts, best independent thinkers, bring them on and interview them at long form for an hour or so, pick their brains on how they do things, how they invest, how they think about the world, and, and also what they see the opportunities are, what investment opportunities, what actionable trades are out there. And you know, the, the whole idea for us within Real Vision and for me with my career is really that there's a democratization of, of, of financial information that needs to happen. It shouldn't be restricted to the few. And very much as your podcast does and your radio show is to really bring it to the most number of people possible, get them all the information they need to be to be better investors and to understand the economy that they live in. It, it, it's it's really a remarkable service. I know at Wisdom Tree uh, we subscribe, and uh, to to be able to access uh, what you just described there for a dollar a day, uh, it's it's incredible. It's a, it's a it's in a way a game changer for financial media. So th- thank you for uh, bringing the idea to the market. Well, thank you so much. I'm so pleased you enjoy it. So, Raul, just just diving in here, I mean, it's been uh, a, a bit of a crazy week, for lack of a, a more technical way to put it, um, in many different markets. And a lot of people, I guess, prior to this week, they were talking about volatility just being more or less non-existent. Uh, you, you really have some incredible charts that you bring to bear on a whole host of different subjects. But if you're looking at the picture of the United States market today, I mean, what, what are some of the interesting things that you're seeing in there? Yeah, look, the U.S. market today, I split down to kind of uh, the four horsemen, the things that, that concern me. Um, firstly, let's just understand where we are right now, and then we'll look forward a little bit. So right where we are right now is the year-on-year data from last year, which was very weak last year when oil prices were falling sharply, um, the dollar was going up, um, commodity prices were falling, meant that the year-on-year translation effects looked like CPI, the rate of growth of various things were very high. Now, that's all unwinding. So we're seeing the economic data come off quite sharply. It took took the market by surprise somewhat, um, and bond yields have started to come down a bit as they're readjusting to what's not what people thought was the Trump trade. It was basically a data trade. And that data is now going to wean off, and the U.S. economy should go back to its trend rate of growth of about, let's say, 1.5% to 2%. 
So that's where we're going now, and that data should fully materialise by July. We should know roughly where the economy is. But going forward, what's the key thing? Because at 1.5% to 2%, that's a pretty benign environment. So in which case, equities would drift higher, emerging markets do well, uh, bond markets tend to do quite well in that environment, and inflation wouldn't be very high. So that's the best case scenario. But there's some things on the horizon that concern me um, that I think people need to be aware of. One is, is what's happening in the oil market. Um, the oil market has a tremendous supply and demand imbalance that's going on that OPEC are trying to kind of step in the middle of uh, and trying to support prices. I don't think they can win. The speculative long positioning in oil futures is was up until recently the largest speculative position ever in the history of commodity markets, where people were betting on much higher prices. But the problem is, is those are weak holders of, of oil futures and is new supply that will come back into the market if they get washed out. But the main story is, is that OPEC are cheating on their, on their quotas. They are actually, they're, they're producing what they said they should produce, but they're exporting more. They're having record exports. So there's a flood of oil. Meanwhile, the shale oil's flooding the market even more. The U.S. is exporting record amounts of oil. There's record amounts of oil in storage. In fact, there's so much oil, we don't know what to do with it. So the probability of a price fall from oil is quite high. That's a large part of the U.S. manufacturing base comes from oil itself. And there's a chance that they're going to have to restrict production at some point because they're going to run out of storage if the summer driving season is not as strong as, as some people are hoping it is. So that's one thing we need to look out for. Secondly, is we look at what's happening with the consumer, the retail sector is not doing well, even with the Amazon effect where you know retail is going towards online sales. We're seeing a huge amount of store closings around the world, particularly in the US. Uh, we're seeing terrible problems in the restaurant industry, um, furniture sales, you know, big negative year-on-year numbers. Essentially, all of that side of things, all the retail side of the market is in a recession right now, and that's something we need to keep our eye on because consumption is a big part of the US economy. Then the bigger part of that is actually what's happening in the car sector. Now, the car sector is the other large part of the US manufacturing base. Now, what's happened is the car manufacturers have produced way too many cars. Their inventories are basically full. They've flooded the dealers with too much inventory. They've had to discount and offer ridiculous financing deals to get people to buy cars. A lot of those leases are coming up for renewal. So there's a load of cars that are going to come onto the second-hand market that could collapse the price of second-hand cars and essentially disincentivize people from buying new cars. And there's already too many new cars out there. So there's an issue that the car manufacturers, A, can't sell enough cars, which is what's happening as consumption falls in America. But additionally, it means that they may have to curtail production. And that's another issue for the U.S. manufacturing base that's a concern. The final part of the equation is... um, is the dollar. The dollar currently has been falling for a few weeks now, um, but my general view has been, I think it was when I first came on the program as well, um, my view is that the dollar will get much stronger over time due to a number of complicated issues within the dollar, the amount of um, uh, dollar shortage of 10 trillion that's offshore uh, around the world right now. There's an issue that the dollar, I think, will strengthen again. If that does happen, considering the oil market the consumption and the autos, if the dollar starts going, then the US economy will start weakening significantly. So it's, it's a very complex year. Well, after about August or so, we'll have some very clear picture on which way this economy is going and how the global markets will trade accordingly. 
great. That was a great background on the U.S. role. This is Jeremy Schwartz here again. And uh, no, I was going to ask you. I was, I was curious on your thoughts on the dollar, given how much you know a lot. It's moved. A lot of people say, "Oh, it's done. The dollar is overvalued." Uh, and so it, it sounds like you have this more nuanced view that yes, it, it could have a pullback here, but that there's still these forces. Maybe that the debt situation that's going to be one of the. Is that this? key trigger you think that gets the dollar on, on the next move? There, there's a lot of people thinking tax reform might change it in, in one direction, but here's some your, your other views there. Yes, listen, when, um, if and when Trump gets the kind of Homeland Investment Act Part 2 done, which is the, the repatriation of dollars offshore back into the U.S., I think that's one of the things he will get passed at some point. Now, that there's $2.5 trillion offshore by U.S. corporations. Let's say a trillion of that comes back. Now, even if they're held in dollars, let's say, in Ireland, once you take it out of Ireland and out of the European banking system and put it into the U.S. banking system, they don't become euro dollars anymore. Euro dollars meaning the offshore interest rate, so it doesn't, it's not part of the LIBOR lending markets. And there's not enough dollars in the offshore market because there's too much debt. So that would drive up the dollar. The last time the U.S. did this, when the funding situation was not as extreme, the dollar rose 15%. And that was only about $300 billion or so that got uh, repatriated. So this is a much larger issue now, and we could see uh, a much further rise in the dollar. Also, if the oil price does fall, as I think it should play out over time, the less um, oil people can sell, uh, sorry, the the lower the price of oil, the less dollars, let's say Saudi Arabia will get. So if they sell 1 million barrels at $50 or 1 million at $25, they have half the number of dollars. So the, the world becomes even more starved of dollars. And that was one of the issues from the oil price fall from 2014, 2015. And also I look at previous dollar bull markets, how far they tended to rise. The first one in the 80s rose 100%. The second one rose about 50%. This one's about 35% so far. I think the probability, knowing the imbalance of the dollar shortage offshore, the chances are it could rise another 20% or so from here. But it's been in a sideways range for quite a while now. So it's been slightly frustrating, but it's something that's still firmly on my radar screen. So let's just reintroduce our guests. I mean, this is uh, really some incredible stuff, uh, giving people perspective on the markets. Uh, I'm Krista Gennady, uh, host today on, on Behind the Markets, uh, Sirius XM 111, joined with Jeremy Schwartz. And we're speaking with Raul Paul, publisher of The Global Macro Investor and uh, also the co-founder of Real Vision Television and and so so Raul just just switching gears a, a little bit I and and I did uh, prior to the show listen to your freely available uh, tutorial uh, about an hour long on the business cycle and the ISM and uh, your your beliefs in in the potential of uh, forward looking signals uh, really for the global markets in that regard but then you recently put up a, a very interesting chart on the stock price of General Electric uh, breaking through some key levels, doing something that it's really only done a few times over the course of three decades. And and I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on sort of how GE kind of connects in as a, as a potential harbinger of the business cycle, and then how you might position if you see that type of uh, behavior, where obviously something that doesn't happen often suddenly does. Uh, what does it mean for a given portfolio? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the magic things about the business cycle, and I use the ISM um, survey to show how the business cycle, it goes up and down. It's cyclical. 
Um, so it gives you some ability to forecast, you know, kind of how long from recession to recession or boom to boom there is. So it gives you some probabilities of when you know, a recession or a boom is coming along. Now, what's interesting is that's the largest driver of asset prices, as I pointed out in that video that I think people can find on YouTube. Um, on that video, it shows that the year-on-year rate of change of the S&P 500 is essentially the same chart as ISM. The year-on-year change in copper, bond markets, oil, the Korean Kospi, all sorts of things. They're all, the business cycle is the largest driver of the price of assets, and so few people understand that. Now, GE is interesting because the year-on-year rate of change of GE is also the same as ISM, but it's been diverging recently. It kind of looks like it's weaker. It's much like the story we've been talking about in retail. There's something going on where there's some weakness that's not being picked up yet fully amongst the rest of the economy. But then the basic chart of GE, it's, basically, it's breaking or it's testing its 200-week moving average that only ever happened twice in, in the last 30 or 40 years, which was in 2007 and also in 2000. So there's an underlying weakness because in GE, even though you know, the, the industrial base of America is not what it was, GE is a good indicator of, of business demand, whether it's in the healthcare business or whether it's in industrials or all, all sorts. It's basically a demand for durable goods. And what you're seeing is General Electric share price starting to disappoint. Now, if that happens, then it tells us we probably switched, if it breaks that moving average, which is somewhere, let's call it about 27 or so, 26 in the share price of GE, that would tell us that at the margin, something has shifted in the US economy and there is a larger demand problem going on. And that would mean that we would have a tendency for bonds to outperform equities. Now, interesting enough, when you look at the bond versus equity returns chart, it actually looks identical to the chart of GE over the last 30 years. So there is informational value here in the share price of GE. And if GE continues to fall, I'd say that the probability of a less benign outcome to the U.S. economy going forward is, is, is rising. I look at things in terms of probabilities, never in terms of certainties. Well, that's, it's an interesting thing, because I looked at it this morning, and he was right below the 200-week, 200, 200 but it, right now it's right above. So it's a very interesting monitor to be, be watching there. Um, you know, one of the, the things you mentioned on oil being, if, if oil heads down, you can think about who are the beneficiaries, the importers. And I know, you know, we've been listening to some of your discussions on India as one of the sort of better stories. Now, India's moved a lot this year. Um, maybe for some people who haven't listened into your, your India thesis, maybe briefly sort of talk about why you think India's a, a good idea. And, and given that it's moved so much, is it still something you worry about from an entry perspective? Or do you think this is just really one of the better stories for the, the next, you know, longer term? Yeah, I guess you have to caveat with a story like India with time horizon. You know, I'm a very big picture macro guy. Yes, I get down to the granularity of where the GE share price is and what it means. But I also look at you know, where is, where's the tailwind investment for the next five or 10 years? You know, where can you put your money and worry less about those corrections? We're going to get corrections regardless of where we invest. You need to know which ones are the ones that are going to bounce back quickly or the ones that are going to be lackluster for an extended period of time. India is a story that I've followed for a long time. I think, you know, all of your listeners will know about the amazing demographics, how young the population is. You know, the kind of low base India is coming from, the infrastructure is lousy. You know, there's, there's so many large improvements that can come. But the, one of the problems with India was it was immensely frustrating by the bureaucracy and the corruption that lies within it. 
And I'm half Indian, so I kind of know the India story pretty well and know how frustrating it can be. And then recently, something changed, is India suddenly banned the circulation of large notes. Now, everybody in the West says, oh, my God, it's expropriation of assets is the worst thing ever. And yes, of course, it is in some respects an ability to do that. But the story in India revealed itself as something much larger, something I was not even aware of. And, you know, I follow these things fairly closely. But the biggest technological development of any country's financial system in history happened in India and nobody noticed. It's something called ADAR. And ADAR is a biometric registration of people. And what it basically is, is, is uh, like a you know, social security card or whatever like that. It gives you a number. But it's biometric tested, which means they use your retina scan or your fingerprint to, um, to monitor who you are. So you can prove who you are by that. But what was amazing is the government of India at the time brought in the leading expert, the guy who founded Infosys, one of the largest tech companies in the world based in India, and said, hey, listen, we want to do this. What should we do? He said, well, you can do something much bigger. And this is what I found out. <coughs> Suddenly, what they did is they made it an ability for people to have a payment system. So they built a pay payment system called BHIM and UPI, which are basically a payment system that allows the transfer of money from one person to the other without a bank as a middleman. It goes from one bank to the other instantaneously. It's kind of like the idea people have for Bitcoin, but 50 times faster, and it works on 2G networks. Extraordinary. Now, they then went one stage further and they said, okay, now we've got that and it's verified by your fingerprint. You can now go and pay for a pint of milk in the store by just your fingerprint and inputting your ADAR number. So you don't even need a wallet. You don't need a mobile phone. So suddenly that is leaped, leapt ahead of every other country in the world in what's going on in India. But they didn't stop there. They then developed something called India Stack, which was a stroke of genius. What they did is they said, okay, now we can record stuff. Let's create a secure database run by the government that allows you to store all your documentation, your official documentation, be it your utility bills, your bank statements, or your birth certificate. India had a problem with no birth certificates. So what happened suddenly is now a villager can give his fingerprint and prove his, his rights as an Indian citizen, which means he can open a bank account in seconds by giving his fingerprint because all of his documentation is there. If he can open a bank account, he can get subsidies from the government. It means that farmers um, can apply for loans, things they couldn't do before in rural India. But it also meant a number of other things. It allows a whole load of people to come into the banking system uh, it allows people even to have their medical records attached to their fingerprint. So if you have a car accident somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you can, they can take you to a medical clinic, take your fingerprint scan, and your medical records will be there. It's an extraordinary achievement. It also means that you can have a mobile phone in seconds by using your fingerprint as your sign of identification of who you are because all your details are attached. So that brings people into the mobile market, the mobile banking market, and the banking market. And then they banned cash. And the banning of cash forced the 90% of the Indian economy that used cash into the banking system. That allowed people to start taking control and use of all of these services, but also put money back into the banks, which were having trouble because they lent too much money out in the previous boom. It meant that it shored up the banking system as well. It also allows governments to capture revenues by being able to tax people because the money's now in the system. So now they can have a higher tax base 
They can build roads and bridges and all the infrastructure that India needs. So the whole thing was a technological solution on a gigantic scale. It's the largest ever open source API ever developed. It was the largest tech product ever developed. 1.1 billion people are on this system. And now it's an open source API. So hundreds of fintech businesses across India are developing applications from insurance policies to life assurance to banking solutions to all sorts of things. And so it's truly revolutionary and it's going to kind of take away a lot of the friction in the Indian economy and also recapitalize the banking system to allow it to lend money again and allow the government to start building the infrastructure. So I think it's amazing. So India may get caught up in capital flows as money flows in and out of emerging markets, but India is a buy-the-dip scenario for the next 10 years. So so Raul... You've got me sold. I think uh, you may have a lot of our listeners. I mean, the, the passion and, and the amazing story there, that that was great. Uh, we have basically uh, less than a minute to go. Any quick closing thoughts on your end? No, I think I, I think we just need to be set. You know, I, w- I, would, I would say be cautious of the U.S. market right now. The business cycle is weakening. We need to keep our eye open. Uh, over the, uh, over past the summer, after the summer, we'll have a much better idea of where things lie. And I've given you the four things to watch. And if you can distill it to one thing, watch the GE share price. Roll, thanks for taking so much time with us on the program today. I'd also like to thank our first guest, Chris Meyer. Uh, thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Uh, please catch us on the podcast. And everyone, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to Behind the Markets on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.